Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The dark wind. Winter of COVID-19 and shutdowns is here, but the spring of vaccines and fiscal stimulus is finally on its way. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We begin with the scientists and the doctors and the person who has been our guide and our expert throughout this experience, Dr. Anthony Fauci of NIH, who it happens had gotten his inoculation just the day before we talked with him. So we started with a question on all of our minds. How does it feel? You know, I really feel really fine uh, for at least five or six hours after the injection. I didn't feel anything at all. I mean, less so than a flu vaccine. Then a late afternoon, early evening, I started to get a little bit of an ache, really nothing to distract me or bother me, but just something that when I press on it, you could actually feel it. I didn't get, you know, a, a lot of muscle aches or anything. I mean, I felt something a little different, like there was something going on like maybe a little warm, a little flushed. I feel perfectly fine. The only thing I have now is that my where the injection site is still is a little sore. But when I say sore, I mean really not very distractingly sore, just baseline, borderline. If there are side effects, how quickly would they kick in? They usually all occur within the first 12 hours and they last between 24 and at the most 36 hours. It's extremely unusual for someone to have something beyond 36 to 48 hours. Now, you, you said in getting your inoculation, it was for two reasons. First of all, you were a physician. You were actually treating patients. But secondly, you wanted it to really represent to people that this truly is safe. We don't need to be worried about it. Do you have a sense that there is much resistance at this point in the vaccination program? 
You know, it's getting better, thank goodness. When we did surveys, you know, a month or so two ago, you know, there was almost 50% of the people had some reservations or skepticism about getting vaccinated. The last survey, which was just last week, they said that more than 65% of the people said that they would be willing to get the vaccine. We really want to get that up even much higher than that because the projection is that if you get anywhere between 70 and 85% of the population vaccinated, you would create a, a, an umbrella of immunity over the community, which could really get the level of virus so low that it would not be a threat. And th then you could answer the question that everyone seems to be asking appropriately, is that when can we start approaching some degree of normality? Uh, when can we be doing things like safely having the children in school or going to a restaurant and sitting indoors or going to a movie theater? You know, I would think if we start getting the general population vaccinated, let's say mid-April, between now and then, we're going through the various priorities. We started off healthcare providers and people in nursing homes and long-term facilities. The second level is people over 75 and individuals in uh, what's called necessary or, or, or important places in society to keep society running. And that could be anything from a police officer to a fireman to someone who runs a grocery store so people can get food. When you get through those priorities and you get to what I call open season, like anybody can get the vaccination, even though you're not in a priority group, I imagine that's probably going to be sometime in April. And then if we can really get vaccines going in April, May, June, July, and August, by the time we get to the end of the summer, I think we can get to that goal that I'm talking about, about getting the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated. So if we keep going on the course we are right now, and obviously there can be turns one way or the other on this course, if we keep going the way we're headed right now, you're saying Labor Day is a likely scenario, sort of in the bell curve, that's sort of in the middle of the bell curve. Yeah, I would think so. I think, again, there's a lot of contingencies and ifs here. One of the big if is that the supply of the vaccines that we think is on target continue. We don't get any glitches in production, because if we have a glitch in production, then the expected number of doses don't arrive. Even though people want to get vaccinated, you're not going to vaccinate them. So the two things that are important, A, production goes along the way we hope it will, and I think it will. And number two, a substantial proportion of the people continue to want to get vaccinated. As far as you're concerned right now, is there anything that we could do as a government, as a society, to expedite that, to have even more production or more distribution? Yes, that's a good question. In fact, what we're doing is that we're negotiating and contractual negotiations with the companies that are already providing a substantial number of doses to see if we can get yet again another added amount from that company. We're negotiating with Pfizer, we're negotiating with Moderna, as well as other companies to try and get the numbers higher than what the original projection was. 
Now, now you do science, you do medicine, you don't do politics. At the same time, in this stimulus package, there is money put aside for vaccines. As I understand, around eight or nine billion dollars for vaccine distribution, maybe another as much as 20 billion dollars, I've heard, for testing and tracing. Give us a sense as a public health official how important that money is right now. How badly is it needed? Well, thank you for asking that question. It is definitely needed because vaccine distribution is a critical issue because A, you could produce, first of all, there are multiple steps. Is the vaccine safe and effective? Well, thank goodness, it is not only safe and effective, it is highly efficacious, 94 to 95%. So we're starting off, luckily, with a really good product. The next thing is producing it. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health. Coming up, as the Trump administration enters its final days, Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross gives us his read on what it accomplished in its confrontation with China. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. One of the top priorities for the Trump administration was bringing China to heel on an array of trade and security issues through use of things like tariffs and outright bans on dealings with Chinese companies. We asked one of the principal architects of that trade policy, Wilbur Ross, Secretary of Commerce, what, in his view, the Trump administration accomplished. Well, first of all, you have the phase one deal which was announced a while ago, that largely deals with commercial side of things, deals with agriculture, deals with manufactured products, deals with energy. So that was a very good thing uh, to level the playing field a bit. There still remains phase two, which largely has to do with better market access, more respect for intellectual property, that kind of thing that is harder to quantify, but at least as important in the overall picture. Meanwhile, we have been struggling to combat the rising military threat of China, both industrial espionage, taking militarily insensitive products, technology into China. And most recently, we put 103 more companies on our list. That's a very big number. It's very precise in that these are the actual subsidiaries 
of big Chinese conglomerates that are part of the military establishment. We call them military end users. Prior to that, we had dealt with the issue of Huawei and ZTE uh, for their violations and for the 5G competition springing up between China and ourselves. And then in between, we did a lot of things about semiconductors. Most recently, SMIC, Semiconductor Manufacturing Industry Corp., the largest of the Chinese semiconductor manufacturers. And then on the other side of the equation, we're trying to encourage a more robust semiconductor ecosystem here in the United States. And that was authorized in the National Defense Authorization Act that just uh, went through. So those have been a few of the very dramatic things relating to China. In space, we have been extremely active as well. One of the items of drama had been imposition of tariffs. Looking back over it now, has the imposition of tariffs had the affected result that you wanted as a practical matter, whether it's trade in goods like your phase one or more broadly? Do you think it's really made a difference in our trading with China, or is this setting the stage for something yet to come? Well, it's both. It, it has had accomplishment. The Chinese commitment, for example, to purchase agriculture is huge. And I believe it will turn out that this past year that's just ending will be the largest agricultural purchase year that China has ever had from the U.S. That's a very good thing because our farmers have been hurting. Remember, though, we have remained with tariffs on quite a lot of goods coming from China. And the major reason for that is to still have some trading room so that if we do get the kinds of concessions that are needed for the bigger issues, that we have something to give them uh, potentially in exchange. So I think it was a very well-balanced use of tariffs, pulling off tariffs on some in a reciprocal way as they lowered their tariff and non-tariff trade barriers to us, but leaving some in reserve so that we can get the rest of the way, because we must solve the technology problem, that we must solve the industrial espionage, we must solve the stealing of secrets in various ways, and we must solve their efforts to become the dominant military power at our expense. And President Trump and you, I must say, have made that a priority, dealing with the industrial espionage, uh, some of the theft of intellectual property, things like that. Can you measure that and see where we've actually made a difference, or has it not kicked in yet? I mean, is there less of it today than there was four years ago? Well, they have passed some legislation uh, that moves a little bit in the right direction, but big issues like market access uh, still remain. So there is work to be done. And we knew that. Remember, this was not announced as a complete trade deal. This was announced as a phase one. So we and the Chinese both are well aware that there's much more to do, and hopefully that will happen in the coming periods. 
Mr. Secretary, one of your priorities, we've talked about it before, is, uh, if I can put it this way, the commercialization of space, really the business yeah. of space. Give us a sense of where we are on that right now, what progress we've made, and what is the next step that needs to take place? Well, there's been tremendous progress made. Uh, remember, back in 2010-11, we launched zero rockets from the United States. Uh, President Obama had made arrangements for the Russians to launch the rockets, including the rockets that carry our astronauts to our space station, most recently charging us $85 million per ride. But in the 2010-11 period, some very wealthy people decided they were going to try to commercialize space. And the president has now ratified that with the new uh, space command on the military side and the other activities on the commercial side. He, the committee has delegated to Commerce a lot of the role for commercialization of space through our Office of Space Commerce. And I'm happy to say that the National Defense Authorization Act uh, has authorized a very big increase in the budget for the Office of Space Commerce. They've a little bit more than doubled it. And they also approved on an authorization basis the merger into that office of the current regulatory apparatus for remote sensing. The remote sensing is the looking down from satellites uh, for GPS purposes, for weather purposes, for all kinds of purposes. That was Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross. Coming up, another historic economic recovery package finally makes it through the Congress, only to be met by President Trump's demand that it go back and increase payments to individuals. Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois was one of those who helped Congress come together on the bill sitting on the president's desk. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It took seven long months and it wasn't always pretty. But this week, Democrats and Republicans laid down their arms and came to an agreement on a $900 billion stimulus package that would be the second largest in U.S. history. But that was only met by President Trump objecting to the fact they hadn't given enough in direct payments to individuals. Well, however that plays out, Dick Durbin was one of the key senators who brought about this compromise. And he said that there is no question that it is necessary and that actually more may be needed. Well, I can tell you there'll be a relief for millions of Americans by extending unemployment benefits, uh, also making almost $300 billion available in loans to businesses, uh, which I think is going to mean survival for some of these businesses, literally. More money for the logistics of the vaccination campaign, help for the schools. Uh, it, it is a long list and a very good list. When it comes, obviously, Senator, at a time when the country is hurting, I mean, we have more and more cases, more and more hospitalization, even, I'm so sorry to say, deaths. Uh, what will this do for the people, for example, back in your home state of Illinois? Well, we have thousands who are going to lose health insurance, pardon me, unemployment insurance. And now they're, they're you know, assured that the check is coming. It may take a little delay to receive it, but they will be receiving the money. 
And for some of these businesses, they have no place else to turn but an additional forgivable loan. Uh, and I hope we can help them out to stay in business. Uh, this is the second largest such stimulus uh, bill in history, as I understand it. It's second one to the CARES Act, bigger than what happened back in 2008, 2009. Uh, is it big enough? No. And I hope that we are open to the notion that we are not in recovery to an extent that we can ignore this in the future. We may have to extend unemployment again. We may have to help businesses again. But the bottom line is the Federal Reserve is giving us uh, a kind of a direction here, basically saying, keep your foot on the accelerator. We don't want this economy to slump into a deep recession. Uh, and I believe them. Uh, they are doing everything they can from a monetary policy. We should do what we could can from the fiscal side. Do you have a sense about whether you'll succeed in that? I mean, there's no way of knowing, obviously, but we have various experts, economists, investors who are saying they think basically this act will prevent the so-called W, that is to say, dipping back down into a second recession. Do you have some confidence of that? Well, I'm hopeful. Uh, I hope it is. And maybe with the vaccines online, more and more Americans uh, being protected finally see a downturn in the infections and hospitalizations and the death. That, I think, is what we're praying for. And that will mean a, a new day. We'll see a more positive future. And I think that optimism can bring the economy back. The unemployment uh, benefits that you describe, I think, go into March, something like that. So this is like a bit bridge for maybe, let's call it three months. Uh, right now, we can't be confident that we're going to be past this pandemic. In fact, if anything, it looks like it's going to be more mid-year. Uh, if we, in fact, do need another round, and you can call it recovery, you can call it stimulus, whatever you want to call it, uh, how confident are you that, in fact, you can get your Republican brothers and sisters to go along with you? When we went into our little group, uh, bipartisan group of senators and started the negotiation, the first thing we heard was that a large number of the Senate Republican caucus does not believe we need a stimulus even now. I, I can't understand where they're coming from, but that's their argument. We don't need it. And so basically unemployment benefits are a real stimulus. Every dollar given to a person unemployed is likely to be spent, not saved for another day. So uh, I think we need the stimulus now. I hope we can avoid it in the future, but if we can't, unemployment is a key. Assuming there's some more help that's needed, uh, as we get into the spring, is there anything you can do right now to position the question to maximize the chance that you'll be able to get that help? Well, we gotta, we have to watch carefully to see what the impact of this. And it, it, there's a lag time, I'm sure, between congressional action and impact on the economy. But there also is going to be a shot in the arm in terms of uh, confidence and optimism. People see this coming. You can witness that in the, uh, the stock market, for example, in some aspects of it. Uh, there is a feeling that perhaps we're really serious about getting out of this hole that we're in. Uh, and if that optimism is demonstrated in the next couple of months, uh, I think we can make our case that the right stimulus and the right amount at the right time can help us to a smooth glide path. You said you're not exactly sure how some of the Republican colleagues could believe we don't need it even now, even this $900 billion. One of the concerns that's raised is the deficit. Uh, and it's something we all have to be concerned about at some level. I mean, we have a lot of debt. We're piling up debt. A lot of people think it's necessary. Uh, do you put some credence to that argument? And what should we be doing? At one point, 10 years ago, you actually had some plans to try to address that. As we come out of this, is there a way that we can come back and actually address some of those legitimate concerns? With a healthy economy, of course, and we should. And this debt and deficit in the United States needs to be faced squarely. But let's, let's face it, we are in a very perilous moment. And if this economy slumps even further, 
if more businesses go under, if fewer people are working, then we're going to see a deficit that is aggravated, uh, not improved. So let's get this economy good and strong and people feeling good and optimistic about the future. Put this pandemic behind us and I think we're going to come roaring back. That was Senate Minority Whip Dick Durbin of Illinois. Coming up, we wrap up the week as we do every week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. And we wrap up the week as we do every week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, a lot of the talk this week was about stimulus. We thought we had that $908 billion stimulus bill. Then President Trump up and said, no, I don't like it. What do you think about where we are in stimulus? Look, we're better off with stimulus than we are without stimulus. I don't think the $2,000 checks... uh, make much sense. The real issue is going to be sustaining this expansion. You think about it, the 908 stimulus bill probably would pay out 200 to $250 billion a month for the next three months. The level of compensation is running about $30 billion a month below what we would have expected it would. GDP is running about $70 billion a month below what we would have expected it would. So in a way that's quite unprecedented, we have stimulus already much more than filling out the hole. And given that lots of the hole is from the fact, not that people don't want to spend, but that they can't spend because they can't take a flight and they can't go to a restaurant, I don't necessarily think that the priority should be on promoting consumer spending beyond where we are now. So I'm not even sure that I'm so enthusiastic about the $600 checks. And I think taking them to $2,000 would actually be a pretty serious mistake that would risk a temporary overheat. I would like to see more assistance to state and local governments. I would like to see more money put into testing Uh, more money put into accelerating uh, vaccines. But gosh, David, I think it would be a real mistake to be going to uh, $2,000. And I have to say that when you see the two extremes agreeing, you can almost be certain that something crazy is in the air. 
And so when I see a coalition of Josh Hawley, Bernie Sanders, and Donald Trump getting behind an idea, I think that's time to run for cover. And um, I know that many of my fellow Keynesians who believe in fiscal stimulus will likely um, be in favor of this, but sometimes there can be too much, too poorly designed of even a basically good idea. And that's my reaction to $2,000 stimulus. Well, it's not massive the way a move to $2,000 a person would be, but when you talk about maybe poorly designed, we've got a 5,600-page bill, give or take here. A lot of stuff in there probably nobody knows is quite what's in there. But it, you've had a chance to look at some of it now. Are there some things that really jump out at you and say, boy, that doesn't make much sense to me? There are two things that strike me as really uh, big-time dumb. Uh, the first is the resurrection of the three-martini lunch. That was repealed by, like, the Reagan administration on principle that why should uh, the company canteen not be tax deductible when you, when you eat there? And fat cat executive lunches um, be deductible uh, for all concerns and not treated as uh, income. We put it back for two years. That's beyond where people think this pandemic's gonna be. The reason they put it back for two years was because they knew that once it had been there for two years, it was going to be hard not to uh, keep extending. So I think that qualifies as the worst tax provision of the decade. And it's a decade that's seen some real doozies. The other one, uh, the other one, David, where it doesn't make much sense is if you get a PPP loan and so you don't bear any expense for a portion of your payroll, why should you get to deduct a payment you didn't make? Or equivalently, if the government's going to give you money, how come that's not being called income? And so that sort of overpayment seems to me to be another thing that's just a straight out uh, giveaway. And Make no mistake, these things are not there by accident. These things are there because people put them there. And they're there then because other people didn't have the courage to resist them, even though they knew uh, that they were wrong. And I don't believe for a moment that there was any large benefit achieved by accepting those atrocities into uh, the uh, tax code. There may have been some little bit of temporary extension, um, temporarily making more generous the childcare uh, credit that they got for the meals thing, but the meals thing will far survive any benefit that progressives uh, derived. Uh, that was bad thinking and then bad negotiating. I talked to Dr. Anthony Fauci, and he said he thinks a sort of base case, center of the bell curve, is we'll be back to something approaching what he called normal by the end of the summer toward Labor Day. And he defined that as 75 to 80% of the populace inoculated. Does that make sense to you? I'll be disappointed if it takes until September to get 75% of the population uh, 
inoculated. I don't see why we shouldn't be able to do it more quickly. I hope that more vaccines will come online than the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines that are online now. I think there's some legitimate issues about whether people should have to get two doses or whether one dose would be uh, appropriate uh, in many cases. I think there are other things we can do to facilitate a return towards uh, normality that center on making testing much more inexpensive and uh, pervasively available. In general, uh, while the worst by far of the errors have been those of President Trump and those of some of the people on the political side, I think the scientific community's desire for perfection has again and again stopped us from having very, very valuable improvement. The FDA shouldn't be blocking many of the tests they're currently blocking. These vaccines should have come on strain a bit sooner uh, than uh, they did. And we need to be thinking about things from a broad population ethic point of view, which speaks to the importance of speed. We're gonna wrap up the week, as always, with Summer Says, lightning round here. Uh, first of all, uh, as you look at the Biden cabinet uh, and the question of Senate confirmation for the ones who need to be confirmed, if you were going to guess, what portion of that cabinet will be confirmed by January 31? I would guess that 80% will be confirmed by January 31 and that 90, 90 to 95% will be ultimately confirmed. My guess is there'll be one or two cases that aren't uh, confirmed, and that the vast majority of those who are confirmed will have been confirmed by the end of January. And that's irrespective of what happens in Georgia with the runoff elections and whether the Democrats it are- It would be better from the point of view of confirmation if the Democrats uh, win in Georgia, but I think even if they don't, uh, the president will get the vast majority of his people through. Okay, number two, what is the biggest political surprise we're going to have over the next six months, in your opinion? I think Donald Trump's going to fade from public view faster than most people expect uh, right now. Uh, it's always true that bullies collapse in the face of a bit of kryptonite, and his various legal problems are going to be that uh, kryptonite. If you go back in history to two figures who had some resemblance um, to uh, Donald Trump, uh, Joe McCarthy and Douglas MacArthur both rode extremely high and dominated the media until they didn't. And once they had passed their zenith, the collapse was faster than most people expected. I think that's going to happen with respect to Donald Trump, and I'll bet right now that he will not be a serious candidate for president in 2024. Uh, and let's wrap it up with a markets-related question, the dollar. There's a lot of talk right now about the dollar, and specifically maybe Janet Yellen as she becomes Treasury Secretary, which most people expect, really uh, taking that mantle the Treasury Secretaries have had, as you know, since the mid-90s, of saying we need a strong dollar. Pache, put aside for one moment what Donald Trump did about it. What do you think the dollar is going to be doing a year from now, stronger or weaker than it is right now? David, uh, 
as J.P. Morgan used to say when he was asked a similar question, uh, my prediction based on all my experience in the markets is that the dollar will, I'm very confident about this, fluctuate in uh, <laughs> the year ahead. I'd be surprised if there was a large move. Uh, Janet, as every Treasury Secretary does, will have to find her line on uh, the dollar. I certainly hope she will make clear that it's the Biden administration's intent to build prosperity on a strong foundation of fundamentals rather than indulge in any idea that it's possible to devalue your way to prosperity. And how she expresses that thought, I'm confident she will find a good way. But it's uh, that essence of a focus on fundamentals rather than devaluation as a prosperity strategy is, I think, the point on which financial authorities have to be clear. Always great to talk with Larry. That is Larry Summers, our special contributor, of course, of Harvard Law School, former Treasury Secretary. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.